0: Video game remakes are generally supposed to improve an old game, but what if it's one of the greatest games ever made? Good morning, good Friday morning to you, it's Super Bowl weekend, I'm Shane Satterfield and this is Good Morning Gaming for February 11th, 2022. It comes bright and early every weekday to our patrons who pledge at patreon.com sifted, and it's delayed a couple days for everyone else. If you like our content, we also have a separate podcast feed for our flagship show Game Face that you can find by searching your favorite podcast service. You'll find the podcast versions of the rest of our content in the same feed you found this. Rumors have been swirling for quite a while about a remake of Resident Evil 4. I will fully admit, One of my favorite games of all time. One of the easiest games to review that I have ever reviewed. I was working for X-Play at the time. I gave it a 5 out of 5. I remember coming into work, telling everyone it was the most solid 5 out of 5 I had ever given. And then everyone went home that night, played it, and came back in. And we're dancing in the aisles of our office. It is one of the rare games that most people can agree is Stellar and really, in my opinion, particularly for the time it came out, had very few flaws. Now, Imran Khan at Fanbyte says that the remake is, one, legit, but two, it won't be a scene-by-scene remake of the game. Instead, it will be scarier and with more of a focus on the game's side characters. He reports that the game has also changed main developers from the RE3 remake team, to the RE2 remake team, and that Capcom also approached Shinji Mikami to come work on the remake, but he declined. Here's the rub. Capcom just recently remade Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3, both good games to great games, however, they left those games basically unchanged. Now it's Resident Evil 4's turn, the highest reviewed Resident Evil game of all time, and for some reason... Capcom feels like it should change it. I, I'm completely baffled by this. Khan's report goes on to say that a decent portion of the game will take place at night, which may include the early scene where Leon fights off hordes of infected in a village. Basically, the opening scene of the game. Also, the three early builds of Resident Evil 4, and there's footage of those early builds floating around on YouTube, they're way different than what Resident Evil 4 ended up becoming. But according to Imran Khan, Capcom is using that as inspiration for the remake. Let's break this down for a second. Bigger roles and more screen time to side characters. What side characters would those be? I can't think of too many side characters from that game, where when I finished playing it, I was like, I really wish I had more time to interact with Salazar. I just, this is completely baffling to me. Why would you remake a near perfect game and take inspiration from versions of that game that were canceled due to the other ideas that they ended up running with and were extremely successful with? I just don't get it. I'm all for remakes, remasters that make a game that was good but had some flaws better, or a game that was on old hardware that maybe doesn't look too good right now, polishing up the graphics to make the game look... I'm cool with all of that stuff, but completely changing a classic is a very rare occurrence. Probably the most prominent would be the Final Fantasy VII remake, and... I'll be honest, I really don't know which I like better. The the original Final Fantasy VII or the remake. I like parts of the remake better because the combat is more active, but I felt like, for whatever reason, the storytelling in the original Final Fantasy VII was better. Here you have Capcom looking to change some of the huge tenets of Resident Evil 4. I don't look at too many video games as sacred cows, but when you start talking about my games of the generation, which is exactly what Resident Evil 4 was for me when it came out, that's where I have to draw the line. Capcom is hoping to announce the project in early 2022, so we should get official news very soon. Now for a couple more stories from the top of your SIFs. Prominent gaming news leaker Tom Henderson claims that eight years after its announcement, Dead Island 2 could finally release this year. We are really piling on the zombies in this episode of GMG. We already knew that Dead Island 2 was still in active development at Dambuster Studios. The game was originally developed by Jaeger. It was then taken over by Sumo Digital. And then in 2019, Dambuster, an internal studio at Deep Silver, took over the development of the game. Henderson also provided some details on how the game plays out. He stated, quote, You're on a plane, and there's a zombie outbreak on the plane. Eventually, the plane crashes into Hollywood. You survive, and it's then your job to survive on the ground. If you remember the trailer for Dead Island 2, it takes place at Venice Beach here in Los Angeles, one of my favorite places to go, and actually about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now. It was one of the trailers of the year when it released. However, we have not seen a lick of official gameplay since that trailer was released. We, we have run that trailer on Game Face dozens of times, dozens of times. And still here we are eight years later, we have not seen official gameplay. Now some gameplay did leak and it's up on YouTube. You can find it on Sifted as well and it did not look great. However, that gameplay was reportedly from 2015, which is now seven years ago. I just talked about the video game zombie this week on Good Morning Gaming, and those are games that are cancelled and then revived. And as I looked into it, there's actually a really good track record for games that are cancelled and then revived and released. Generally, they end up pretty good. And here's a case of yet another one. Well, I guess I would call this one a video game about zombies, zombie. PlayStation exclusive Horizon Forbidden West is just around the corner. I hope you guys are getting excited for this game because I am pretty much bursting at the seams at this point to to get on with it. Today, the game's developer, Guerrilla Games, announced the accessibility options. Some of the features are carryovers from its prequel, Horizon Zero Dawn. Players will have the option to adjust damage levels that Aloy deals and receives to and from enemies, which gives you more flexibility in adjusting combat difficulty. I'll say one thing. I wish From Software would include this in all of its games. <laughs> I could probably then say I have actually finished a From Software game. Another feature is the co-pilot system, which will allow another user with a second PlayStation controller to to access the game. There's also another feature called the easy loot system, where any resource components that are still attached when killing a machine are added to its loot inventory. This lessens the need to detach those components during combat. In all, Guerrilla Games is doing the right thing by making its game accessible to as many players as possible. As part of the push for an open app store, Microsoft president Brad Smith told CNBC Today, that the company not only wants to keep games on PlayStation, it wants to bring Call of Duty and other popular Activision Blizzard games to Nintendo Switch as well. Speaking to CNBC, Smith said, We'd like to bring Call of Duty to Nintendo devices. We'd like to bring the other popular titles that Activision Blizzard has and ensure that they continue to be available on PlayStation and that they become available on Nintendo. This is great. I am not a huge proponent of exclusive games. I want everyone to be able to play every game while spending the least amount of money as possible. So I just want to say that first. But secondly, don't be fooled here, people. (laughs) This is all about Microsoft trying to make sure that its purchase of Activision Blizzard makes it through all the regulatory checkpoints. If the FTC or some other government agency believes that this purchase will irreparably harm people who have purchased other consoles, then they could actually block the sale. So right now, Microsoft is saying everything that it needs to say. It needs to say any franchises that were previously on PlayStation are going to continue on PlayStation. It needs to say we're going above and beyond by now releasing games on Nintendo platforms that in some cases have never appeared on Nintendo platforms. At the same time, Microsoft can't exactly say this stuff and then not do it. If Microsoft were to use verbiage like this to get the sale passed through the regulatory check marks and then not follow through on its words, it could be facing huge fines. So Microsoft is not playing a game here. And one of the reasons you haven't heard that games like starfield are coming to playstation is because starfield has never appeared on playstation that's how this whole thing is playing out so if you're a playstation owner and you're trying to figure out which franchises will continue to be released on your platform all you need to do is look at what franchises have already been released on that platform and you can pretty much count on them continuing to be available Ubisoft has announced that it's issued 166,000 bans in Rainbow Six Siege in just the last 18 months. That's 14,000 bans per month. That's one ban every three minutes. (laughs) That's how bad the cheating is in Rainbow Six Siege. Ubisoft is working on a phone number verification system with an outside vendor to help curb the cheating. But... Why do players do this? I don't understand it. I will never understand why players cheat. If it's to move up the ranks and eventually get picked up by some esports team or league, when the rubber hits the road, they're going to get exposed. If they're not as good as their numbers are saying, eventually someone's going to sit there and watch them play. And then what happens? They're exposed. More likely, though... They're just griefers trying to ruin everyone else's good time. And again, why? Why do people do this? I, I'll never understand the psychology. Why are there so many people who just want to see the world burn? The Sims 4 wedding expansion won't release in Russia due to the country's anti-LGBTQ laws. The expansion story focuses on the marriage of two women. The Russian government passed a law in 2013 that supposedly protects children from homosexual content, stating it contradicts family values. Rather than bow to Russia's authoritarian regime, EA is going to lose some money and not release it there at all. While I admire EA for taking this stand, you've got to wonder if oppressed LGBTQ Russians would prefer to even have a more watered-down version of the game. However, EA is saying all the right things. Quote, Over the years... You've delighted us with the ways your Sims have found love and celebrated that love through weddings in our base game. You've also shared with us your eagerness to walk down the aisle, have your Sims take their seats, and shed a tear of joy as you made a lifelong commitment. The ability to tell stories, any story, is at the core of what we do at The Sims. Holding back Cam and Dom's story meant compromising the values we live by. We are committed to the freedom to be who you are, to love who you love, and tell the stories you want to tell again full marks to ea for taking a stand i don't think it's going to lose a lot of money by not releasing it in russia but it is some and that matters the expansion launches february 17th everywhere but russia all right let's take a break and when we come back we'll tackle today's boss fight Welcome to today's boss fight where I tackle random topics that may or may not be related to video games. One of the things I get asked the most by people I run into who recognize me, and it doesn't happen anywhere near as often as it used to. When I worked at GT, I was recognized all the time. It's pretty crazy, honestly. It still shocks me to this day. I can't imagine what it's like for really popular YouTubers. I mean, there was one time I went to the movies with my sister. She had come to visit me and we went to the movies, and a bunch of kids walked up to me, and were like, are you Shane Satterfield? It still blows my mind that that ever happened to me. Ever. That doesn't really happen much anymore. Like, even now, when I walk around E3, across, like, three days, I'll maybe have five people walk up to me and say, are you Shane? But, so things have changed drastically for me over time. But one thing that people always ask me when they do meet me is, one, how do I break into the games industry? And two... What does it take to get into the games industry? There are two separate questions, and I'm going to tackle the latter of the two today. First, I would say there are basically three main disciplines in the games industry that you should probably decide between. There's working in game development, actually creating the games. There's working in marketing and PR, basically the advertising of the games. And then there's working in the press. And then obviously there's the C-level executives. But you're only going to get there if you start at one of these three places. I'm going to start with development. I have never been a game developer, but I have literally talked to thousands of them. And not just talked to them in a very sterile environment where they're doing one interview after another. I've done that stuff. But really meeting them out at industry nights having a drink with them at the bar after the press event is over, or just some of them I've become friends with through life and uh, we've stayed close through all my years in the industry. And what all of them say is that your love of games doesn't matter as much as you think. (laughs) They said more so, it's that you should love the discipline that you're working in. So if you're an artist, you have to love art if you're a programmer, you have to love programming. If you don't, the job is going to kill you and you're going to wash out, no matter how much you love video games. In fact, some of them have told me that a love of video games can actually be a detriment to being a game developer. They say that sometimes people who really love games are very outspoken on development teams, and there is a very clear hierarchy on those teams. Now. To be fair, a lot of developers I talk to also say that their corporate structure is pretty flat. And the whole development team generally has some kind of say in the direction of the game that they're working on. However, there is a line that gets drawn in the sand. And a lot of times, people who are really into playing games tend to place a lot of weight in their opinions. And in some cases, devalue the opinions of others who they do not perceive to be as, quote, unquote, hardcore as they are. So, number one, being a big gamer, not that much of a help to work in the team environment. And number two, you have to really love what you're doing. And then, of course, the next thing that people ask is, okay, I can deal with that stuff. How do I get there? And this is one of the rare cases where I would say that going to school... And spending a lot of money on a trade school where you learn how to program or going to like Full sale University doesn't really pay dividends. In the end, the proof is in the pudding and a lot of people have taught themselves how to program on their own, watching YouTube videos, reading tutorials online. And really, the best resume you'll ever have will not be, I went to this school or I learned how to program when I was 13. None of that stuff matters. What matters is building something. Something tangible. A chunk of code that shows that you know what you're doing. And believe me, they'll be able to figure out if you know what you're doing because they will look at your code. And so, if you want to get into development, what's most important is doing it, is developing and creating a portfolio of things that you've created. It doesn't matter where you went to school, what kind of grades you got, either you can code, either you can build 3D visuals, either you can create compelling audioscapes or you can't. It doesn't matter where you went to school, where you graduated in your class, all of that is irrelevant. Can you do it or can you not do it? Let's move on to marketing and PR. This is, I would argue, The most luxurious gig in the games industry. As a marketing and PR person, it's your job to be the liaison between both the press and the advertising space. So if you're a PR person, you're working with the team, you're working up a PR plan, the team will say, okay, we'll have a build done on X date, and from that build, we will have enough assets to create a trailer and you go through the entire development cycle with the development team and you lay out a marketing and pr plan you're like okay this is a date for the debut trailer this is the date for the gameplay trailer this is the date for our really expensive cinematic trailer this is when we're going to go out and show the game to the press so we need the build on this date to take out and show the press or send to the press the way things work now and then finally okay this is when we expect the review build this is when we'll send it out to the press, this is the embargo for the reviews, this is our launch trailer. All that stuff is planned out by the marketing and PR department. Now, the marketing team, they take a look at the game, they figure out what its tenants are, what its big marketing and selling points are, and then they try to figure out outlets where it makes sense to advertise. So, back when I worked at GT, we don't have any advertising at all on Sifted. We are conflict-free. But back when I worked at Game Trailers, we would have products. So a marketing person, we had marketing people, and then Sony or Nintendo or Microsoft or whoever had marketing people, and they would meet and get together. And the marketing person would say, okay, this is the game. This is what it's about. What products do you have that are a good match for this? And then our marketing person says, oh, well, we have this Series where we do awesome retrospectives. Since this is Halo 10, how about we do a Halo retrospective that covers the first nine games and then leads into the 10th game? That's how it works. That's how the relationship works. And they agree on a price for that, when it will run on the, on the website, and off it goes. It's a fun gig. You fly around all over the place. It's definitely not for people who don't like to travel or are introverted because it's really about meeting people face-to-face, making deals, understanding their product. But while you're doing that, you're flying first class or at least business class. You're staying many times in the nicest hotel in whatever city you're, you're traveling to. It's a pretty posh gig. And at the end of it all, you get to be there for the parties and, some, and sometimes you get to plan the launch parties. I would actually argue, if I had a son or daughter, and I do not, But if I did and they were asking me what should they major in, I would tell them to major in marketing and PR. There are a lot of industries that go away either through automation or advances in technology or the position just becomes irrelevant eventually. Marketing and PR is never going away. There are always going to be products and therefore those products are always going to need to be advertised and marketed. And that person Could be you. So, of the three disciplines of working in the games industry, marketing and PR is the one that I would target. The hours are normal, the life is posh, the work is fun, it's all good. Last, and I would argue least, is the press. (laughs) Something that I've been doing for 20 some years now, and I think probably the part of working in games that I'm most qualified to talk about. And again, if I had a son or daughter, and they came to me and they're like, Dad, I want to follow in your footsteps, I would absolutely discourage them against it. <laughs> working, working in the games press is honestly one of the most thankless jobs you'll ever do. Every day you wake up, you wonder if something exploded, something you wrote, something you said angered the wrong person, and now there's pitchforks out coming for you. You reviewed a game and a bunch of people are angry at the score that you gave the game and your Twitter feed is full of angry people telling you you're an idiot. And a lot of you may say working in the press covering video games would be a dream job. It can be, but it mostly isn't. Particularly when you first start and you're not reviewing games like Horizon Forbidden West and you're <laughs> reviewing like my first review was Lego Rock Raiders and you do that for the first like year that you work in the games press All the while, the hours are extremely long. I work generally from 7 in the morning until 11 at night. I'm recording Good Morning Gaming right now. It's 7.55 p.m. that I'm recording this right now. After this is done, I have to edit it all together. I have to render it. I have to upload it to YouTube. I have to convert the show to an MP3 file. I have to upload the MP3 file. I have to create all the graphics to promote it. Once all that's done, it's uploaded, I have to then go and publish it on Sifted, on Patreon, on our YouTube channel for our members on YouTube. And then I have to go on social media and promote it all. I will do all of this. It's 7.55 right now. I will do all of this before 10.30 or 11 o'clock tonight. Does that sound like fun to you? I'll see my wife tonight for about an hour. And that's it. We'll have dinner together. And then she'll go to bed, because she has to be up a little earlier than I do, believe it or not. And then I'll come back here and work for a little bit longer. Is that exciting? It can be. Getting to play games early, that's exciting. Getting to just play games at all that you really love, that part's great. But that is such a small part of what you actually do. Now, if you've listened to all this, and you're like, well, okay, I'm still in, Shane. I still want to do it. I'll tell you how to do it. Personally, I went to college and majored in journalism, and I got a journalism degree. And, while well, I'm glad I have a college degree, and I feel like I learned a lot in college that both apply to my profession and just apply to just being a well-rounded person in general. And I had a lot of good times in college. I made friends there that have become my lifelong friends. Not my high school friends, my college friends. Those are the bonuses. But what I found was that when I got into the industry... I was like the only person who did that. So I'm paying off my student loans, making 35 grand a year. And the other people I'm working with aren't. And they're getting by okay. And I'm literally like living on ramen. So would I say I regretted going to college, knowing the profession that I wanted to enter? No, because I do not think I would have got the job if I had not had my journalism degree, because I didn't know anyone. When I got to GameSpot, Everyone who was working there were friends, and they had hired their friends. When their friends needed a job, they're like, hey, why don't you come over and work at GameSpot with us and review games with us? And they're like, hell yeah, that wouldn't have worked for me. I had to submit an application with all my credentials. I had been running my own gaming website for two years, and still in the end, I was one of like six candidates that they had narrowed down to the final selection process. I was, I was lucky For whatever reason, Joe Fielder saw something in me and he gave me the job. There's a lot of luck that goes into it too. So for me, I probably wouldn't have got the job if I didn't have the degree. But now, I feel like there's even less reason to get a journalism degree if you want to be in games media. The best thing that you can do if you want to be in games media, and I'm not exaggerating, is just build your social media following. That's it. If you have a million followers on Twitter or on your YouTube channel, or whatever, you'll get hired. Period. That's all it takes. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how well-versed you are. All that matters is that you have already gathered that many eyeballs to your content. And the idea is that when you're hired, those eyeballs will follow you to whatever publication you start working at. And I would argue that the smart thing to do is not join a publication at all. If you're that good and you have that kind of a following, just start your own YouTube channel, or just stream. Because then, you're not worried about all the politics of working at a huge corporation. There are, obviously, perks to that. You get a 401k. You get reasonable healthcare. There's parts of it that are a bonus, but I'm telling you, the extra money that you will make being your own boss far outweighs the perks that you get working as an entry-level gaming editor your salary is rock bottom if you don't really love games it will burn you out fast you gotta love games now i did mention earlier that if you're working in development sometimes being a hardcore gamer can actually be a detriment to the team and to you personally and your professional growth but in general you really have to love what you're doing and if you're a journalist You're playing a lot of video games and writing about video games. If you don't love it, you will burn out so fast because it's grueling. It looks so glamorous on the outside. I do not look glamorous at 1130 after I've worked for like 15 hours and my eyeballs are like hanging out of my face and my hands are trembling from typing like 40,000 words that day. You've got to love it. And I would argue in marketing and PR, loving games... Is a huge advantage because it helps you make those connections on those deals. So when that meeting happens between Game Trailer's marketing person and Sony's marketing person, you can understand if what they're pitching you makes sense for the game that you're representing and is going to be successful. So I don't think you need to be a hardcore gamer to be a marketing or PR person in gaming, but I do think you need to be a hardcore gamer if you want to do well in gaming marketing or PR. It doesn't hurt either if you're a really nice person. That's also really important. If you're an introvert or if you can be a little gruff, probably not the job for you. It's all about making relationships and building trust between you and the press or you and other marketing people. So I feel like I'm wrapping this up and I'm making working in the games industry seem really awful. It's not. It's it's like a lot of jobs. There's Days where you finish work and you're like, "Ah, oh, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And then there are some days where the day ends. You're like, oh, my God, I'm so lucky to do this. And I think most jobs at least have a little bit of that. I know a lot of minimum wage jobs don't. At least the ones I had didn't. Like I never said, th- oh, I'm just really thankful that I'm working at the gas station when I was in high school. I'm talking about careers, things that you want to do with the rest of your life, not selling another shirt at Benetton or Macy's or whatever. But I don't want you to get the impression that it's just all bad. That's what's really important. If you truly do love games, it can be an amazing vocation. It can also crush your soul. But above all, if you really want to get into it and you want to have a sustainable career, you really have to love video games. And I don't mean like, I like playing Halo and I like Mario You need to be able to play bad games and still find something enjoyable about them. You need to be able to look at every video game and find at least something redeeming in every single one of them. If you don't feel like you can do that, it's probably not for you. Before I go, I want to drop my pick for the Super Bowl on Sunday. It is the Rams versus the Bengals. Right now, the Rams are favored by three and a half points. And I know a lot of you may not know this, but generally... The way NFL lines work is the home team gets three points just for playing at home. And in this case, the Rams are playing the Super Bowl in their home stadium. So that three and a half point spread is really half a point. So the Rams favored by half a point over the Bengals. I'm taking the Bengals. I'm calling for the upset here. It's not that big of an upset, I don't think. I feel like the Bengals just have the mojo. The biggest concern for the Bengals is the Rams defensive line and joe burrow getting sacked a lot here's the thing though joe burrow was sacked nine times in his first playoff game and still won so you can't rattle the guy and even if you do get to him that much it's not such a big detriment to the overall game that the bengals still can't win the bengals receivers on the rams secondary i think that's going to be the x factor in the game and i think the bengals probably have the best wide receiver core in the nfl and granted The Rams have a nice receiving core, too. They have OBJ. They have Cooper Cup. But it cannot hang with the trifecta of receivers that the Bengals have. So I'm going to say the Bengals win outright. If you're betting, and obviously, full disclaimer here, (laughs) if you bet and you lose, it's not on me. I'm not recommending that you bet. But I would say I'm calling the Bengals to win, and they're getting three and a half points. So if you are going to put a couple dollars on the game, I would take a hard look at the Bengals. All right, thanks for listening to Good Morning Gaming. I appreciate every single one of you who listens to Good Morning Gaming. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can do what the cool kids do and follow me on Twitter at DinFire. And while you're at it, follow Sifted at Sifted Games. We'll be back with another episode on Monday, so have yourself a great week and make sure you seize today because there will never be another.